Greetings, friends. You're listening to the As Temperatures Rise podcast, a space of inquiry and listening where we dialogue about what it means to be human in these complex, troubled, and exciting times. We collectively stand in a liminal space in a time between worlds with a choice to restore kinship to the living world, to be of the earth again and bring forward a relational and life-affirming bio-reverent world space that is ecologically, culturally, and spiritually regenerative. I'm your host, Katie T, and I was inspired to start this podcast to share voices and perspectives that I've turned to in my own effort to make meaning of this bewildering and disruptive moment. Each conversation for me is like a sense-making breadcrumb in the tangled forest of the Anthropocene. As temperatures rise on the planet and between us, may these conversations serve your own meaning-making in the smallest of ways. May your temperature rise to the perfect boiling point of the phase shift that's needed for our collective evolution. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Janice Rouse, the founder of Body Dialogue. And in this conversation, we dive into the inquiry of how do we know what we know and the importance of embodiment in this time. My apologies in this particular podcast. The mic is running a little bit hot on my end. I have a temporary studio set up that is not quite dialed in yet. So bear with the hot mic and enjoy the conversation with Janice. Welcome, Janice Rouse, to the As Temperatures podcast. Welcome back, that is. And just to let the, the audience know, of course, we're, we're very good friends. And some of the conversations that we've been having offline of late have inspired me to, to bring you back on. But before we dive in, can you share for folks just a little bit of your background? Um, I come from to you as a teacher, primarily. My deep interest and love is learning, exploring, and helping people understand what it means to be in the body, to actually be in present time in an embodied way, uh, not just because your nervous system is somehow regulated, but because you actually understand what it means when you're not in your body. You know, you understand what it means when you're either something emotionally has triggered you and you just zooped out or you're dissociated from a historic issue that keeps you kind of observing on the sidelines. Or uh, I think there are people that use spirits and all kinds of medicine to dissociate. And even meditation can be a form of dissociation. So I come to this but from when you quick, just quickly to clarify when you when you say then not in or not in the body you you're meaning dis, disassociation by one form or another yeah I think I think that term is really not very well understood mm -hmm. my work is called body dialogue and it's deliberately about how do you listen to what your body's telling you. And when your body is telling you you're so frightened that you've got to get out of town, that actually, that actually is something that actually happens. People actually leave their body. I was on a rafting trip down the Colorado River and we had five days of huge rapids and terrible, terrible rain. And the leader of the group got us together in the morning. And she said, now, you know that when we're going down these rapids, we really need people to stay grounded in their body and present. And I said, uh, excuse me, when I get very scared, I leave my body. And she looked at me and she went, 
leaving your body is not an action. In other words, you just can't. So I had to actually get into my sensate experience, like feel my hands on the raft, breathe into the base of my spine, into my hara, into my center of gravity, stay focused on objects outside of me that I could use as orientation. I actually had to tell myself, you're okay. This is scary. Don't, don't split off from yourself and just watch from over here. <laughs> and I think a lot of people don't even know they're doing it. Right. I didn't know I was doing it for most of my life, but I was living in a trauma, a trauma space. And so when I was distracted a lot, I didn't understand that was a form of dissociation. And it becomes so normalized. And it becomes so normalized in our culture. It was totally normalized. And it wasn't really until I started doing very intentional work with my breath that I was able to understand what it was to stay located in the energy field of my own body rather than be in my subtle field. And people who are healers are often able to go into the subtle field and not actually stay with their feet connected to the earth, with their body and breath located inside them. And the reason I know this so well is that when I started working with my breathing teacher, he could say to me, Janice, you're, you're starting to leave. He could, he could feel it. Mm. And at that point, I'd been teaching Alexander technique for 10 years, and I didn't even know I was using it to just like jump out because mm. I'm so skillful with energy that I could go into the field and pick up what was going on in the field, but not be in my physical body. Right. So this, this sounds pretty esoteric, but actually I think it's why we're in the trouble we're in today in the world. Well, well, yeah, that's leading to my, the question I wanted to lead with, which is, I mean, one of the things we've been reflecting on is embodiment is sort of the new trend right now. You know, the embodiment, embodiment symposium, embodiment summit. Uh, I, I feel like every other day or so in my inbox or something around embodiment and we're trendy creatures, monkey see, monkey do. And by that, I don't mean a negative thing. Uh, you know, it's good that it's, that it's coming into the fore, but to just reflect on that, your, your, your sense of it arising now. So I'm very curious and I'm beginning to write on how do I know what I know? In other words, how do I understand my experience? How do I express what my experience is? And how do I know to the point of owning and naming the power of using the breath as a vehicle to come into your body, not just into your felt sense, which is an experience of the body, but into a, into a sense of being located, mm. located. Mm. So sometimes people think that they're in their body because they're very emotional but that doesn't actually locate you in your body. You're just in your emotions, mm. right? So this is hard stuff if you don't know what I'm talking about. In other words, if you've never had the experience of what it means to come in and you've always been sort of flying above yourself or observing from the outside, you might not even know you're doing it unless you have a dream that keeps on telling you this. So. When I was very, very young, uh, both of my parents were immigrants and there was so much fear in the house that pretty much in my lifetime, the intensity and the pressure of having to survive and make it in America was the total preoccupation of my parents. 
So my mother had a retail store and my father was a manufacturer and a salesman. And I was the youngest child. And so there was, there were a lot, a lot, a lot of times that I was left alone. Or if I was home, my mother was under so much pressure. She was always angry, angry. She was just had tantrums and temper that would just frighten the shit out of me. <laughs> so the only place I felt safe was, <laughs> I felt safe hiding in the closet, hiding under the bed, hiding in her closet. And I realized in looking back on my childhood, I needed benevolent spaces to put myself in. <laughs> and then at about, uh, I don't know, four or five years old, I started going to dance in school. And that's where I started realizing there was a difference between being in my body, actually being in my body and being in my fear, which would really literally take me out of my body. And I would just sort of be an observer. So I've been in this conversation for a long time because I started doing this work as an Alexander teacher in 1969. Uh, in 1979, I started teaching. 1969, I started studying it. And in 1981, when I certified and I started working with people, I just loved it because I could just go into people's energy fields and just like coast. And it was so much fun because it's kind of like being, um, it's kind of magical. Mm. And then somewhere around, I don't know when, my early 40s, I realized that I was tense all the time. Even when I thought I was such a wonderful, fluid Alexander practitioner, I was tense. I was holding my breath a lot. Like almost all the time I was holding my breath. And that's when I started understanding that really to be in your body fully, you actually have to have a full breath. Mm. You actually have to know what that means. That, it wasn't enough to just meditate following my breath. I had to actually experience what a breath felt like when it was full and not held or worked from my accessory breathing muscles, when the whole coordination was working. So I dedicated my life for 15 years to understand breathing coordination. And then I started teaching people. And the more I taught people, the more I realized that there's so many ways that you can just check out. All kinds of ways. Um, so I started teaching and I was working with tone and breath, I still do. And if you can get into people, if you can really let people go into the areas where they're frightened and into the restrictions of their body, they can have an experience, a presence that might be completely novel for them. And that's what happened to me. I started actually feeling good and joyous and expansive. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And actually out of my unconscious one day, I said, Hitler would be very upset if he knew how good I feel right now. Mm, wow. wow. So, it, so it had a really trans truly transformative. Totally. I realized, that, I realized that I was living in this state that was really inherited, I think, from my father, since he was a survivor of the concentration camps, that at any moment, the Gestapo could come, take down the door and take us away. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't safe. Right. And when that's the water that we're swimming in, we don't even know that that we're in it. Like you were saying, you didn't know that you were restricted. I didn't know that I was living in terror. I was living in fear. Mm -hmm. So what I'm interested in now is investigating how fear takes us out of our body and how often you can be in a conversation with someone and they're in a fear space and you don't know why you can't locate them. And it's because they're not with you. <laughs> they're actually in that place of either anxiety or fear or vigilance or shame and they're not present with you. And then the relationship feels like something's weird. Like, where are you? Right. And right. I think some people do physical stuff to get that feeling for the adrenaline. You know, maybe that's why people do extreme sports. I certainly know that's why people drink and cut themselves and have sex because they, they, it helps locate them. Mm. 
and also helps take them out. Yeah. Well, and that feels like probably always critically important work, but maybe even especially now, given that I feel like we're living in a fear factory. You know, I think we're not only living in a fear factory, I think that the mainstream experience because of social media and media is to keep us in a state of breathlessness and fear. Mm -hmm. I, I actually feel like, I don't, I don't think like there's a big daddy in the world keeping us, you know, I don't think it's like, you know, Putin and Donald Trump have all gotten together and said, let's keep everybody terrified. But I think that's what's happening. I mean, I think between the pandemic and the politics and uh, well, I will share with you, and I and I want to. I have a follow-on question that that goes a little more deeply into this question of how do we how do we how do I know what I know? And I mean, to your point, I've actually been reading H.R. McMaster's book, uh, Battleground. Right, five-star general, nonpartisan. He's worked for every administration, and it's it's incredibly eye-opening. And I will say, I haven't heard him say it, but it, it feels like he's saying, and maybe I did hear it in another podcast that we are in World War III. It is not being fought with, with arms. Mm -hmm. It is information warfare, cyber war. And certainly we all know that at the, at the level of not knowing what to trust. And if you happen to have any kind of trauma in your experience, your personal experience, you already don't know how to trust your reality. Mm -hmm. So when people say, I don't trust you, they don't trust themselves. Mm. I, I never felt I was trustworthy mm. because I didn't know at what lengths I would go because of my fear to get to feel safe. And in a lot of cultures, they don't even understand. I mean, I know that there are people from the East who come to visit the United States and they go, there are a lot of empty people walking around like hungry ghosts, you know? Mm, yeah. I remember Mother Teresa saying, the poverty in America is greater than anywhere I've ever been. And I don't think she was talking about poverty. I think she was talking about a loss of soul and a connection to spirit. Mm. And so I think the compulsion of materialism keeps people hungry all the time and dissatisfied. So can we dive a little more deeply into what you mean body breath body as navigational tool to know what i know how do we know what we know how do we navigate that sometimes so there, there there are people i'm one of those people that are very very sensitive so i pick up stuff that's in the field all the time and sometimes i speak it and people are like you're not allowed to say that. I mean, we've all agreed that we're not going to talk about that. And why are you speaking that? And, and, and I get, you know, people receive me with hostility because there's an agreement. We're not going to talk about that. Right. So I knew from a very, very, very early age that what people were saying was not reality. But they kept on telling me it is reality. It is reality. You just don't know what reality is. And I knew there was a discrepancy between what people were telling me and what was actually going on. I knew that from a young age. So I pretty much got convinced that my reality was wrong and I shouldn't trust it because something about what I knew was not what they wanted me to know. So I better just get with the program. So I right. think I spent a lot of time in my early life just trying to figure out what people wanted from me, because that seemed like I'd be safe. So I was a good student. And I smiled all the time. And I was a performer. And I gave people what I thought they wanted. It sounds very familiar. I think it's actually pretty much what a lot of I mean, I think I think there are the kids who rebel and the kids who conform. Right, <laughs> but the, the, essence, the essence of it, right, is that is the split, beginning yeah. to split from, from our own 
from truth from our, from our truth our experience our direct experience so the reason why i think the breath is so revelatory is that if you can get into a quiet 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 place and really allow your natural organic breathing coordination to work which takes some doing because so many people are so frightened that their diaphragm really isn't doing very much and your diaphragm is your brain main breathing muscle okay so when people say pouch out your stomach and all that stuff that's not getting your diaphragm working your diaphragm actually has to be activated and the only way it can get activated is through tone and sound and vibration but if you can get someone quiet enough and get them activated and get their breath working so that the diaphragm is actually getting activated and the sound is filling their body there's a sense of expansiveness and once you have that you trust that and you know some people have that just naturally some people have it when they do sports like that's why some people love to run because it happens for them when they're running or skiing or swimming you know i used to swim when i was um working in an office because it was the only time I got to breathe because when I was in the office I was just like type it away and holding my breath right but in the pool I could get into a rhythm I could exhale so so question why is this important it, connected to you know what I was sharing before why is this important now even in the face of this space of information warfare where you know, I may not even with the breath be able to tell whether there's some kind of deep fake happening on social media, right? Right. So I can't help you or anybody know what to listen to on the news, but I can tell you what to experience within yourself as truth, which is not, I mean, you know, this is a really hard thing because fundament, people who are fundamentalist and really dogmatic they're coming from that certainty, but that certainty is up here. It's very mental. It's not coming from an experience of their whole body resonating and opening and vibrating to that. They might feel that it is because dogma gives you that sense of certainty, but certainty in your brain is not the same as resonating internally. I think the Eastern disciplines are so brilliant because they can bypass the thinking brain and get you to a much deeper level of awareness. And that awareness, if you can get quiet enough, starts having you monitor your inner experience and your inner experience then starts having an outer relationship. And if you can start having that experience, something happens in your body where you start trusting and feeling love and compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to split and you don't have to polarize and you don't have to project and you don't have to make it outside yourself. You don't have to make other people wrong and right. Mm -hmm. You don't have to polarize because you have your experience. I mean, all you have to do is look at... Mm -hmm. Bishop Tutu or, you know, the Dalai Lama, or go even closer and be with a four-year-old who's just in joy at the beach, mm. you know, and just living for that wave that's just about to hit them. And they're in it. And they're not thinking, is this really a wave? Maybe it's not a wave. Should I be? <laughs> you know, but if a mother is there hovering, they'll start getting scared and then, oh no, it's a wave, it's coming at me. But you know, most kids really have a sense of what's danger. I mean, not always, I'm not saying there aren't kids that won't walk right into the water and think they'll be taken care of. But you know, my son used to say to me when he was little, very little, like three, four, mommy, don't worry, I know how to climb. And he did. And then would beat other mothers at the, at the gym, at the playground that would hover so much, you could see the kid didn't know how to trust their feet. Mm. And kids have instinct. They know how to trust their feet. If you don't say to them, put your foot on that, don't, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, send all their fear, your fear into them. Mm. So 
You know, I love the fact that Brene Brown brought up this whole idea of naming experience. And I want to name that fear takes us out of our body. Mm-hmm. And when we're out of our body, and what I mean by that, and I think that's why this big, huge world of embodiment is happening, is people are starting to notice, wow, I actually am so scared I'm not here. <laughs> I think people are starting to notice that. Or they're having experiences like maybe in meditation or maybe with sacred medicines that, oh, I feel so expansive. Maybe the universe is benevolent. <laughs> maybe I, I can trust. Mm-hmm. And something starts happening where there's a different kind of knowing that happens. And what I like to do in my teaching is give people that experience of full body awareness. They get off the table and go, oh, this is different. Well, what's different? I feel my feet. I feel like I can look around and see what's here. All of a sudden, my, my lens is wider. I can take in more of the world. Mm. Wow, I like this. Mm. I want more of this. Yeah, I got this sense when you first said connecting with the breath opens us to to self-love and compassion I could feel that and and in my own experience and that the sense of healing over the belief in our brokenness you know there's so much in culture and education out of pure innocence I mean forget the malicious stuff you know that just just you can just be in a classroom and a teacher is terrified because there's all this craziness about guns in schools and teachers think it's their job to keep the kids safe. And so every third word out of her mouth is be careful, and this is bad, and this is bad, and this is dangerous. And that's not an environment children can thrive in. No, or, or just living in a soul-crushing culture you know, that tells you to do one right. thing when it's really not your soul prompting. I am reading Joy Hard Joe's biography, Crazy brave and in it she describes so perfectly what happened to her when she was taken out of her family home and her mother was remarried to a very scary man 17 years older than her than her mother and how the guy basically wanted to create a prison and take separate the mother from the children and she talks about it and I literally can feel my body contract because of the way in which her language recreates her childhood. And when she went to her boarding school that was for the arts and she started being an artist, I could feel my body open because she was starting to be in touch with her capacity as a creative artist. And we all are doing that. We're living in an energy field. And once you're sensitive to the energy field, you will start finding that you can't be in certain places because the energy is too toxic. And that, you know, I mean, I had to move out of New York because I couldn't be in that city with all that energy. It was making me nuts. It had been making me nuts for years. And I'd go away from the city and I'd go up to Maine for the summer and all my cells would go. (sighs) And then I'd come back to New York and I'd be in enormous grief, so sad, so upset so worried, but my children and my husband wanted to live there, so I lived there. And then we'd leave and I'd go, (sighs) So I am of the opinion that you can feel even before any words are spoken. Before you you make sense of it. Right. Right. And what is the, the, like that navigational tab that what are we, what are we following there? What are we listening to? Good question. Um, um, Hold on one second. I think that's the greatest question. I think that's the greatest question. And it's a hard question.
All I can say, and I really don't have any other words, is that once you know that you read energy and you feel energy and you experience a reality that's nonverbal but is but is is giving you messages all the time. Once you start being attuned to that, which we all are, we just shut it down. I mean, some people come in with it more gift than others, but once you have that awareness, you can't turn it off. So some of us, like I'm a person who cultivated that, right? I cultivated that energy awareness and have gained greater and greater skill around it. There are other people who did the opposite. Like if you are in a prison, you don't, you can't afford to do that. You know, if you're in a prison, you need to know how to take care of yourself. And at every moment you have to know how to be tough and appear invincible. Right? You can't afford to be that sensitive. Or if you are, you have, have to have a very good persona, a very good mask. I mean, I'm only saying this because I saw a story last night about a prisoner who talked about how he had to train himself to look, you know, powerful, but he was really scared all the time. I think yeah. that maybe a lot of us do that, you know, maybe yeah. a lot of us are walking around trying to fake it, you know, but we're really living in terror. I'm, my whole preoccupation right now, and what's interesting about this conversation is that we don't really talk about or I don't think people have really expressed fully what it means to notice the difference between feeling internally alive, expansive, and aware. Not by doing some polyvagal exercises, but because that's, they, they, you feel capable of living in that space. Yeah, you know, I think I, the question I asked, maybe it was good, but maybe it wasn't really fair either, because it really is beyond words and a certain manner of speaking. And, and I think if it was, it's a mental question, and I guess under it, I'm kind of asking, is there, there's, there's a natural tendency to this biophysical energetic experience that, that, you know, vectors seems to vector towards. There are many, many people studying this right now. I mean, there's whole schools that are looking at subtle energy, that are looking at the polyvagal system, that are looking at the nervous right. system, that are looking at how does the brain work to know what we know. Damasio talks about that. There's lots and lots of people thinking about this stuff. I'm not coming from it from that point of view. I'm coming from it from, as an experience as a body worker, as a dancer, as a painter, as a writer, as a creative artist. And even as a spiritual person, I mean, when I was a child, I'd go to synagogue, I'd sit with my father, he'd go up on the bima because he was a bigwig, I'd sit by myself and I'd have ongoing conversations with God, not in English, I don't know what language I was talking to him in, <laughs> but when I heard Hebrew, I somehow felt like that was my language, I didn't understand the words, but something about the syllables. And I knew when I was praying, I knew it like as a very small child mm. and I know it now and I know environments that support it and I know environments that don't uh, and most institutional religion actually doesn't even I, I, I think there are churches and I think people like Pentecostal churches and evangelical Christians because the spirit rises yeah there's a kind of <laughs> ecstasy that you can join in that's a group you know, experience. And I'm sure singing in a choir gives you that, right? In the Aretha biopic, she talks about how music saved her. Mm. And I think what she was really talking about was that when she sang, mm. 
she connected with something so much bigger than herself. Exactly. And then I was going to add to that in a group, there's that, that experience of communitas. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That, that is, and that can be, that can be good or bad. You can be in a Hitler rally and feel communitas. You can be in a cult. You can be in a cult and you can, it can feel really good. I mean, there are people who told me that they went to the January 6th riot, uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. Uh, well, rally. Oh, and, yeah. And it, it wasn't scary until until some people started storming the building. There was this period before people who were believed in this cause and they went down and they, they felt okay. They felt that they were really doing the right thing by them, for themselves and for America. And it wasn't until it got violent, which is of course why I'm terrified of herd mentality because it can be t- towards love or it could be towards hate. And it's a very thin line. Yeah. So the same is true in your own body. You know, passion can take you towards rage and murder. It could take you towards love, but you have to know the difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why domestic violence is very, very high right now. So what we're talking about has to do with an awareness that brings you to a certain level of consciousness. And you have to know where you're going with that consciousness. If you're trying to be like Steve Bannon and bring that consciousness towards hatred and destruction, Mm. you have to know that that's that's their end goal. When you said something, it takes a certain kind of hygiene. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we said something interesting that took me back to an experience myself, you knowing the difference to know that difference. I mean, one, it takes stillness, it takes attention, and not just being jerked around. But my experience back in my 20s when I quit smoking, it would, I quit smoking cold turkey. Because finally one day, it was like my consciousness slowed down and paid attention enough to actually feel how horrible that felt Mm -hmm. to smoke. And when I actually felt the the, the ick of that, let's even say maybe the suffering of that or the suffering beneath it that caused that addiction beyond the the physical addiction, it, it I didn't have to go on a program. I didn't have to, you know, use Nicorette. So I think the question that I'm really still interested in is how do we know what we know and how do we know what we know for the good? In other words, if you value, let's say, connection or you value If, if your highest goal is to be responsible and a member of the community for the good, what does that mean for you? You know, what is your job? And I have to believe that right now, it's as important for people to do this kind of hygiene at this time of unturning, unraveling, great turning, whatever you want to call it. That doesn't mean you get to do this all day and never know that the planet's heating up. I mean, you know, there's some responsibilities that go with being a citizen of the world right now. I'm not quite sure that you can tell anyone else what your responsibility is, but. But would it be fair to say that when we develop this relationship that it comes back to the knowing what we know, like, you know, there's a phrase that's bantered around a bit like you know uh, what's mine to do so i think i think there's two things going on i think that question is an important question for people to ask themselves personally i mean that's just mm-hmm. something i believe sure but i'll never forget i was in the presence of Thich han who just passed away two days mm-hmm. ago the great buddhist monk and i went into the kitchen <laughs> And being me, you know, very gregarious and extroverted, I wanted to talk. And I got the stink eye from everybody and I didn't know why. Well, if you're a practitioner of Thich Nhat Hanh, you don't talk while you're eating. 
because it takes you away from the experience of tasting your food, chewing your food, swallowing your food, digesting your food. I went into the kitchen and it was like I had let out a swear word or something. And I didn't know what the rules were. I was like, oh. so I went out and I went, uh. <laughs> you transgressed rule number one of mindful eating. So in that moment, I had a huge awareness, which I'm still learning every day, mm. that different cultures have different rules. We don't always know what the rules are of the culture. So a lot of times there are transgressions and microaggressions because someone who's sitting across from you is very sensitive to that particular word or that particular experience. So the sensitivity isn't just at the service of yourself. We're in relationship with one another. So for me, what I'm trying to teach and the reason why body dialogue is so important to me is that if you can be responsible for yourself, then perhaps you can be responsible for your relationship with the person next to you. And, you know, the highest principle in Judeo-Christian theology is, you know, treat the other the way you want to be treated. And I believe that. <laughs> I really believe that. When I was a little girl, I literally said to myself, if grown-ups remembered what it felt like to be a ch child, they would never treat children the way they do. Yeah, and, and yet if we harbor self-loathing, how is it that we'll, we will treat others? I really believe that self-loathing is the absence, not the experience that we come into the world with. We come into the world, I believe we come into the world not being fearful. I mean. I don't know what happens in utero. I'm sure there's a lot that happens in utero. We know there's epigenetics. We know that you know your chromosomes are hooked up a certain way. But unless you know you come out in the world and it's a very dark place, which it is for a lot of people right now, or you're abandoned, you know, all those experiences of babies that were never touched. But that's a learned experience of fear. I don't. There are wonderful studies by the child psychiatrist, psychologist, Daniel Siegel, about the gaze between an infant and his mother and what that bonding does and how attachment works. Mm -hmm. So there are some people that have a better chance at not falling into the abyss because they got that early attachment. They got that early, that early sense of belonging. There are a lot of people that are not having that experience right now. And my teacher, Marion Woodman said, if, you're a if you were a person who came into the world and your mother wasn't able to receive you, it's hard to be an adult. Mm, yeah. You're not gonna trust. And I think there are probably plenty of well-meaning people who are so busy on their cell phone, they don't know their child is hungry mm. and are not attending. To the infant. And I'd venture to say that there are a lot of chronologically old bodies that are not actually adults in positions of power. I would say that there's so many unmet infantile needs that parade as maturity that of course we don't know what to trust. I mean, when people smile at you and tell you everything's fine and you know everything is not fine, that they're poisoning the river with toxicity, how can you trust? So what has happened in my short life of 70 years is almost... I, I'm trying to find the right word because I was with my daughter who's 39. We were talking about the experience for her of living today in this world and the experience that I have. And 
she doesn't have as much disillusionment as I have because she never bought the bullshit. <laughs> you know, she didn't buy the American dream. I mean, partially because I was her mother, but I was going to say she stands on your shoulders, one who has done a lot of work to decondition that. Yeah, but still we're conditioned. We are conditioned. Yeah, as and, long as we're and, in these bodies. And, and if you know that you're you're re responding to conditioning, mm. then at least you have a better chance. Mm. And I would say that my life experience is what brings me into the question, how do we know what we know? Yeah. And then how do we trust what we know? And then how do we teach what we know? And how do we offer that? Mm. Because as a parent, the best thing I can do for my child is to say, I gave you the tools, I trust you, I have confidence you'll make good decisions. That's all I can do for my children mm. because they're grownups now. They get to be adults and make their own decisions. That doesn't mean as a mother, I don't want to say, uh, I don't know whether that's such a good idea, but okay, right? And a lot of times now they're doing it to me. Mom, please don't get on the plane. Omicron is still raging, right? So I think as long as we recognize that we're in relationship to one another, we're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this because if you want to be in relationship, it really helps. And I it helps to know what's going on with you. The first law of nonviolent communication is know what's going on for you first before you're ready to spiel out to everybody else. Right? That's, that's so big. It is. Mm -hmm. And if I say that to some people, go, of course I know what's going on. I, I know what's going on. And they're like, totally, totally not there. <laughs> They're either compartmentalized or dislocated. Yeah, I'm thinking of Viktor Frankl's famous quotation, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And it, I'm going to botch it, but right in that space is where we have choice. And there's so many people who don't even know they have choice because they're so mm -hmm. reactive that their choice is their reactivity. Yeah, there's not a... They don't know that they have choice. They don't have... They can't take the breath mm. to ask the question, is this what I want to be doing right now? Mm. So that brings us to wisdom, right? And there's some wisdom that comes out of very young people like a Greta Thunberg, like, how could you not see that we are poisoning this planet, grown-ups, right? Like, you just want to say to her, so sorry. So to me, the deep conversation right now for all of us is what choices do you want to make around your knowing? You know, in other words, if you know what you know, <laughs> I mean, this is a really stupid example, but I think it's maybe... Maybe it's relevant. You know, I know salami is not good for me, but I still choose to eat it sometimes, okay? It's not as bad as some other things I could eat, right? And I don't do it as my favorite diet. I love having it in the house, but I can't because mm -hmm. I'll go to it if it's there, right? I think we get to make choices around our well-being. <laughs> Well, and I was going to say, it seems to me it's a game of values and knowing our values. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot oh, of talk yeah. about that. And there's a lot of expression of, of misalignment with values. Mm -hmm. So I invite people to just notice when they're holding their breath, mm -hmm. because by holding your breath, you're cutting out information from coming in. And you don't even know what you don't know then. Mm. So you're we're not allowing information in. Right. Like you were saying at the beginning, like you didn't even know. 
you know, didn't even know that you were constricted. We, we can't until, until, and, until there's enough of a difference, you know? Right. I mean, I think there's a reason why smartphones are about, you know, they're right up there with a lot of danger because they get you so addicted into distraction that you really think you're having a real, real experience, but you're not. There's nothing, I mean, you're, there's some messaging going on. But is that and real you, connection? And, and you can have connection on the next level, but there's a really big difference between getting 62 emails from someone saying, give me money for this campaign and going out and asking yourself, what's really important to me in this moment as a human being in this social experiment called living? Mm. Mm. So, so where do you see this going? This, this work, not with you specifically, but well, with me specifically, yeah. I'm, I'm specifically interested in helping people who are aging, particularly mm. aging bodies, not mm. be so terrified of mm. aging because for yeah. the first time in their life, they're required to notice they have a body because it hurts them half the time. Incredible. So that's partially what I'm kind of interested in right now because I can help people deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I do private work and group work to, to help people navigate aging. Mm -hmm. but, for young kind of people, but for young people, I think it's even more important to know that cultivating awareness, cultivating relationships with responsibility requires you to be present to yourself. And you can't make it somebody else's job, right? It's not somebody else's job for you to be responsible for yourself. So mm -hmm. hopefully by the time you get to be a young adult, you've learned the tools. And if you haven't, it's not too late to learn. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's so much despair. Mm. Yeah, I think that was the question I was getting at in terms of, this being important and, and in the face of converging crises right now, people back to the, you know, we're in a kind of a global state of, of fear. There's, there's, one could say a contagion of despair and it's easy to lose one's footing in a sense of inspiration or forward momentum and as a species where do you, that, I guess that's where I was going with this. Like, where do you see this work in our micro worlds, right? If we take the time to reconnect. So we're in a, a very, very serious time of transformation. It's happening whether people want it or not. You know, climate change is real. People are starving for real. Minority uh, aware, awareness of the relationship between privilege and financial privilege and uh, I don't want to just say poverty because it's much more than that, but what privilege affords and what is privileged over what all of that takes awareness. And once you have awareness, you can start making choices. And if you don't have awareness, you're not even in the first step. Mm. So I think it's wonderful that you can go on YouTube and you can learn stuff and you can take stuff in and you can get tools, but then you have to use them. <laughs> and as a teacher, my goal is to offer people tools and encourage them to use them and create community so that there's a place to go. Mm. And, you know, maybe I have 10, 20, I don't know how many years I have left, but whatever I've left, it's important for me to be responsible. And part of what I wanna be responsible for is what I know. Mm. And then I wanna offer what I know to other people. Yeah, and I'm getting a sense of, uh, 
that there's an access to a particular kind of liberation? Well, for me, the liberation is daily. Yeah. It's, it's moment to moment. Totally. I never really believed in enlightenment as a goal, but I do believe that one can bring light into one's life. <laughs> moment to so, moment. Yeah. And, and so, the moment to moment choices we make or yeah. the moment to moment that we take the time to realize we have choice and, and exactly. access and take and, and assume agency. Exactly. So I'm, I'm not one of these people that wants immortality. I don't want to live to 140. I don't care, you know, if I eat salami occasionally and, you know, I get some nitrates into my body. But I want to know I'm making a choice. Mm. And that the value there, right, maybe enjoyment, maybe. Right. Over, I mean, over, yeah, strict diet. I, I'm not, I'm not harming anyone. You know, I was a dancer. I was really, really, really a Nazi with my body. So I can't do that. I don't have the capacity anymore to be that restrictive in my intake. There was a time if I had five pieces of celery, it was too much. You know, that to me is crazy. And it's a dominating mentality. I'm not interested in dominating myself or anybody else. I'm really interested in being loving and kind and gentle and grateful mm -hmm. minute to minute with myself and with all the people that I love and don't love. I mean, you know, my neighbor is not someone who I have a great affection for, but it's good when I walk down the path in front of him or behind him to not go, you stupid jerk. And to instead of that, say, okay, breathing in, there he is, you know. <laughs> Right, because that's you're polluting your own environment and inner environment. I, I I get this. You know, the word for me this year that, that came at the beginning of the year, you know, that I really wanted to devote myself to both in practice and in contemplation is is thriving. Yeah. You know, and, like and, and to me it's like thriving not without an opposite. It's you know, it's thriving in the face of challenge, which there yeah. are plenty. Right. And, 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 and the other piece of that is knowing which battles are the ones to fight. Yeah. You know, knowing when it's important to stand up mm. Mm. And, and when it's important to use my passion yeah. to be discerning. And likewise, to, say, to, to, to know then when to let go of my righteousness, I'm speaking as me and let yeah, it go because it's not a worthy battle. Right. Exactly. And I think we get to make those choices on a daily basis, minute to minute too. Yeah. I mean, I am someone who is privileged enough that I can be philanthropic. What do I want to put my energy behind? What do I want to support? What do I believe in? Mm -hmm. What don't I believe in? Janice. I always leave our conversations feeling much wiser. <laughs> bigger. And bigger. More, more expansive. More expansive and more in myself. And, you know, I often have the words and I, you know, I will expose myself as being highly mental, uh, but to have the practice to bring it down and in and through, that's where the joy is. That's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. That's where... Yeah, even in the face of, of difficulty, which it, it's coming for each and every one of us. Um, that I, can't, I can't help but think about the fact that we met each other in the Amazon, in Ecuador, with mm. people who lived very differently than we did. And they were there to be our teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was one man who... We were in circle and he just stood there. He didn't speak my language. No idea what he was thinking, but I felt his presence. Mm. He was like a pillar of strength for me. Mm. That's what I'm talking about, about being in your body. He, I'm sure, does not leave his body. He's probably also a hunter and does all kinds of stuff right. that he can't afford. Right. But there was a quality of energy that was just like, shoo. Mm. And he got me through a very hard night. Mm. 
just, I was very scared and I felt him. We never got to exchange a word, but he knew that I knew, that we knew that we were both there together. Mm -hmm. That's so profound, right? And just that, that sense of trust beyond language, obviously just that presence really imbues an unspoken trusting. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, dear. I really value, uh, I value the hard work that you've done, you know, to, and your devotion and passion and the lucky people that get to work with you. And now to share with, with my audience. <laughs>